At Passion and Stir is proud to welcome the Root Cause Coalition as a sponsor of our podcast. Here's the Root Cause Coalition Executive Director, Barb Petey. Thanks, Billy. The Root Cause Coalition is a member-driven nationwide nonprofit dedicated to reversing preventable chronic health conditions. We focus on hunger and other social determinants, the root causes of health disparities in the U.S. Hi, I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. We have two guests today from New Mexico, Lee Caswell and Anzia Bennett. Uh, and I'm here in Washington, D.C. with my sister, Debbie Shore. Deb, how are you? Hi, great to be here. Thanks. Lee Caswell, Director of Center for Community Health for Presbyterian Healthcare Services um, and part of the Root Cause Coalition, which is a sponsor of this broadcast, this podcast. Thank you so much for being here. And Anzia Bennett, Director of Three Sisters Kitchen, both in Albuquerque. So um, are you both uh, New Mexican natives? No, um, this is Anzia. I actually grew up all over the country, um, up and around with my family, following my mom's career, but have been in Albuquerque for about 15 years now and really love New Mexico. And yes, and I've been in New Mexico for 13 years, but I'm originally from northern Colorado. Lee, tell me how um, a little bit about how you came to be director of community health for Presbyterian Healthcare Services. It's the largest non, uh, not-for-profit healthcare system, uh, which, as I understand, runs a chain of an operates chain of hospitals across New Mexico. Uh, what was your career path that got you there? Uh, so I grew up in Colorado, and what I wanted to do with my life was emergency management. I wanted to do search and rescue and get paid for it. I've always loved the mountains. Uh, so I got a degree in environmental health, but I was really fortunate to end up in New Mexico because I had a child and I really wanted to work for a local government. And so I came here and was still doing environmental health work, but really lucked into a position where I was doing community health assessment and planning. The position opened up right after I moved here in, in the department I was in with the county. And uh, that really gave me the opportunity to dive into communities and re- learn about community health priorities and figure out how to bring people together to plan around the community priorities and figure out um, how we can all contribute our different strengths to solving the issues and building on strengths in the communities. I just got really lucky when the Affordable Care Act was passed and, you know, health systems were asked to do more as a part of their community benefit. They were asked to go out into the communities and ask what the priorities were and and then ask how should we address those priorities. And so Presbyterian opened up my position and I was, you know, had been doing assessment and planning for almost 10 years in the community. So I was really fortunate to be hired into that position and have gotten to build that work. And and that process that you're talking about in terms of uh, assessing what the priorities are, the, particularly the health priorities for the community, what did that look like? How long did that take? And what did you discover? Yeah, so we do it every three years. And, you know, it, New Mexico is a unique state. We don't have county health departments. It's a central health system. So um, what, what our state has done has... Uh, been funding community health councils in each of our counties. We have a lot of values around supporting what exists in the community and honoring the expertise of the local community. 
and um, really working to fill gaps. So after the communities told us what their priorities were, we narrowed it down to three, three to five. So in all the communities, it's those three I mentioned. And then in some of the other communities, what recently has come up is violence prevention and economic development. And access to care tends to be a priority in many places because we are so rural and there are so many limited resources. But so then we we came back and we asked, okay, you told us these are your priorities. Now tell us what exists in the community that's working well that you want more of and what isn't there that you want. And then we, you know, tried to figure out how could we help to fill some of those gaps through existing resources that we have and also uh, additional investments that we could make. And and Anzia, it sounds like Anzia Bennett uh, from Three Sisters Kitchen, it sounds like one of those priorities, uh, particularly healthy eating, is your sweet spot. Um, Talk to us about what Three Sisters Kitchen does and uh, how you ended up there. Give us the, you know, kind of the best description of understanding. Absolutely. So Three Sisters Kitchen is a new community food space in the heart of downtown Albuquerque. It's really designed to create opportunities for community to engage in, to build, and to benefit from the local food system. So it houses four distinct areas under one roof, all designed to tap into the power of food to bring community together, to create economic opportunity, and to improve community health. The space itself has a a local food shop and cafe, a commercial kitchen, test kitchen for a business incubation, a community dining room, and a community classroom. Anzia, I was really struck by the name, and I I think there's something really cool behind it, but tell us why Three Sisters. So the three sisters refer to a a method of complementary planting um, that's really common here in the Southwest and and really all over the world. The three sisters are corn, beans, and squash, and, you know, really focusing on the ways in which those plants, um, those foods grow stronger together and drawing from that metaphor to really think about how communities work and and grow together when we're all... When eaten together? Or you're saying saying that they grow... So they they grow stronger together. They also are are really good for you when you you eat them together. So yeah, think about the corn growing tall and the beans growing up, that stalk using it for some support. Think about the squash leaves growing out and providing shade for those roots, um, keeping pests out with their prickly vines. Um, And then, you know, one fixing nitrogen in the soil, the other pulling that nitrogen out, right? So it's really this complementary system. That's and great. That's, so it's nature just working at its fullest. Absolutely. There must be other foods like that too, no? Or is it just yes. those three? You know, you look at communities all around the world who have for generations been experimenting and exploring and, and found the best methods to grow the, the most beautiful, healthy food. Uh, Lee, I want to get an understanding of... Um, who these services are for, not just Three Sisters Kitchen, but uh, yours at Presbyterian Healthcare Services, why they're needed, a little bit of understanding, I guess, of um, of the, just the economic conditions in New Mexico. I know there was a point at which when Share Our Strength was looking at childhood hunger in New Mexico, I think it's gotten a lot better, but there was a point uh, just a few years ago where New Mexico ranked uh, near the bottom uh, of the 50 states in terms of how severe the childhood hunger problem just give us a sense of like for some of the people that you serve, what are their lives like? Give us some examples. Well, so you have to think about New Mexico being having a lot of urban areas, but also many rural communities. So people, you know, don't all have access to, 
you know, passable roads year round. When we've gone out to some communities, they've said, we want a road that's passable. We want law enforcement. They don't have any law enforcement in their communities. They don't have any behavioral health services. There's, you know, high, high rates of poverty. Half of our state could qualify for Medicaid. Uh, one in four kids is food insecure. So, yeah, we, we have a lot of challenges in the state economically. And, Lee, when you say no law enforcement services, I mean, there's got to be a there's got to be a county sheriff and stuff like that. You're saying it's just spread so thin that it doesn't um, people aren't, aren't able to access it. Yeah. So in that instance, we had gone to a tribal council meeting and um, we were talking about our priorities, you know, or or what we had heard were the community's priorities. And they really related well to healthy eating and active living and um, the substance abuse issues, you know. But they said they they don't have a road that's passable. And I had just driven out there and I totally um, could relate to that because I was luckily in a truck. But if you had been in a sedan or something, you wouldn't have been able to to take that route. And um, yes, they their perception was that there was no law enforcement in their community. And it's such a large county that sure, there probably was a county sheriff, but I don't you know, that may not necessarily translate in uh, a reservation area, right, in, in tribal lands. So the priorities are really, really unique to each community. And, you know, in some communities, like our one of our hospitals has a census of four, which means we have, you know, an average of four people in the hospital on a day, right? And so it's really challenging, especially in the current funding environment, to keep... Um, you know, a hospital like that going. Yet when you talk to the community, the presence of that hospital there is so important uh, for many, many reasons, you know, access to an emergency room, access to healthcare in general, but also just as a an anchor institution presence in that community. And, uh, you know, that's what we hear a lot, this idea that, and we've been thinking differently about our work, you know, that just our presence, in addition to the health care that we provide, can have a huge impact on the health of the community, depending on who we choose to hire, where and what we choose to purchase, how we choose to build our facilities and, you know, and who we hire to do that. You know, all of these different resources that we have are, are hugely important to the community. And your your uh, your patients, those you serve, uh, are they young, old, employed, unemployed, um, Native American? What's the kind of what's the demographic? You know, everybody. So we serve one in three New Mexicans. So we we serve everybody. We don't have as large of a presence in the state down south near Las Cruces, but uh, you know we're in ten different counties in the state. And um, so it, it's it's everybody. Uh, certainly our population is aging, just like everywhere else. Um, we have a large Native American population in the state. It's, it's everybody. And is it is it uh, Navajo in New Mexico primarily or? So the Navajo Nation is is a, a huge part of, of New Mexico and 
Um, in addition, there are 19 Pueblos and then also the Apache. So there are a total of 23 Indian tribes here in New Mexico. And then when you look at our urban areas and the, the Native American communities we have in our urban communities, it's incredibly diverse people from all over the country, right? So we have this, you know, off-reservation presence as well. And we also have a large refugee population in the state and especially in this city and um, a lot of immigrants as well. So it's a, an incredibly rich population here. Where are the uh, refugees from? Generally? All over. Um, so we have um, Afghanistan, right? I mean, Anzia, you might know a little bit more. Afghanistan, Syria, um, whew, those are the two big ones I can think offhand. We have we have a program. Um, we have a mobile farmers market in Albuquerque, and our recipe cards that we give are translated into six different languages. So um, we're really it's a really rich, yeah. diverse I gonna, community. I was going to say with the between the native populations, which can be pretty isolated, I would imagine, and refugees and immigrants, there's really a challenge in um, making sure that people understand how to eat really healthy and what the foods are and how to cook them and all of that kind of stuff. And I guess, Anzia, that's where you probably come in. Yeah. And I think really we we see that as like this amazing resource, right? I mean, there's all of these communities with all of these amazing longstanding traditions of, you know, using food to feed their families, but also really to, to build healthy communities. And so at Three Sisters and, and really a lot of the community food work happening in New Mexico and in Albuquerque specifically, um, people are drawing from their own traditions to teach strategies for, for healthy eating, for healthy cooking, um, and for growing their own food. And, you know, that's really, it's, it's, exciting because there's so many different um, experiences, lived experiences that contribute to what healthy eating means and what healthy eating looks like, right? It's not one sort of prescribed, assumed diet. Um, and so there's so much to learn with and from each other. Yes. We we just had one of our recent guests, uh, Doug Rausch, was on formerly uh, the founder and I guess president of um, Trader Joe's, but he now runs a uh, a program called Daily Table in Boston, and um, he said that food is the cheapest form of healthcare. I listened to the episode; I was very inspired. Um, <laughs> we, you know, when we talk about healthy food, when we talk about access to healthy food, but also when we talk about food as medicine, you know, we're literally talking about what that food does in our bodies, but we're also talking about the ways that food connects us to our families and to our traditions, the way that food brings us together, right? We know that that health is is more than just counting calories, that it's more than just um, specific outcomes or, you know, it's it's really quality of life and connection and way, you know, the ways in which we're combating isolation and, and feeling a part of our communities, right? And food is so core to all of that. Tanzia, the food entrepreneurs that you're supporting, are they primarily folks who are working with their own families or are they trying to start businesses that are going to serve the larger community? How does that, how does that break down? Yeah, it's really a mix. So we focus our recruitment on people who have great ideas for food businesses, but don't have the financial capital to get those businesses up and running and definitely don't have the the additional funds to sort of take the risks that we know are necessary in early food business development. And so Three Sisters is really focused on creating 
a really supportive space where people have access to our commercial kitchen. They have access to a basic pantry. They have access to, you know, really high quality training and mentorship as they are building out their their concepts. And our focus is on value added products. So, you know, food that comes into our kitchen, something happens to it, and then it's ready to, to be sold on the, the shelves in a retail space. Um, and we know that figuring out the difference between, you know, making a few hundred cookies for family at Christmas time versus making a few thousand cookies to package and sell in a retail context, there's so a necessary learning curve. Um, and so we're really hoping to create opportunities for that type of experimentation and development. What's the best food business idea you've heard so far? There's so many good ones. <laughs> um, there's a lot of interest just in, in pretty basic techniques that will result in extending the the season for revenue generating opportunities for growers. So a lot of interest in just basic dehydrated goods, soup mixes and spice mixes and, you know, herb mixes where you can take what's growing in the field that needs to be sold immediately or used immediately. Um, you can get it into our commercial dehydrator, grind it up or package it up and sell it for the, the full year and really create opportunities for farmers year round to bring in some funding, but also, you know, get good, fresh, healthy foods into the hands of, of community members who are looking for those options. Um, there's been a lot of interest in like flash frozen foods, which we're trying to figure out in terms of getting the right equipment in. Um, but thinking about the the needs of some of our larger institutional partners who are looking for ways to get more local food on their shelves or in their cafeterias. Um, you know, frozen foods are, are really ideal for those customers. So um, when you say large institutional partners, do you mean like uh, grocery stores or Targets or Walmarts? Or yeah, also, you know, schools and hospitals and those big buyers who are really excited about the opportunity to support local, but who need, you know, a pretty consistent and pretty large um, inventory of, of local products to be able to really support those big buys. And so frozen goods are one way to think about getting the quantities needed for that type of, of local procurement. Um, and we're, we're excited to explore what those partnerships can look like. I'm Barb Petey, the executive director of the Root Cause Coalition. Founded by the AARP Foundation and ProMedica, the Root Cause Coalition is a member-driven, nationwide nonprofit dedicated to reversing preventable chronic health conditions. We focus on hunger and other social determinants, the root causes of health disparities in the U.S., at the Root Cause Coalition, we develop and implement sustainable solutions to improve our nation's health and well-being. Listen to this. Hunger costs the U.S. healthcare system more than $130 billion annually. $130 billion. And Children's Health Watch tells us the long-term costs of homelessness and housing insecurity will cost the U.S. an estimated $111 billion in avoidable health and education expenditures over the next 10 years. Please go to rootcausecoalition.org to learn more. Since we know that food is terrific form of health care and it's preventative and all of that, but what would you say is kind of the best way to both introduce and to kind of keep people eating healthy foods? Yeah, I mean, I think there, there are two sort of core commitments and values that really guide our programming at Three Sisters, and I think a lot of the work that's happening in our community. Um, the first is to really move away from a shame-based approach, right? We know that hearing what's 
what you shouldn't do and why it's bad for you and why, you know, you shouldn't eat hot Cheetos. It, it doesn't really help change behavior. So if we really focus more on opportunities and what people know that that makes them feel good, right, and really build out ways to make it easier to access those foods, to make time for cooking and eating those foods, and really celebrate what our communities bring to the table versus telling them the bad decisions they're making or, or what they should do better, right? That's a beautiful place to start. And the question we ask is is really, what makes you feel good? And how do we build in those opportunities to really be mindful about how your body feels when you eat certain foods? What energizes you? What makes you feel tired? What are your cravings really about? When do you feel them, right? And and that becomes a really beautiful way to tap into, I think, a more mindful relationship with, with the food we eat, but also memories come flooding back about like, oh, what did my grandma cook? Or what, what did I grow up eating? And when did that change? And that becomes a really beautiful way to, to tap into you know, the existing knowledge that our communities hold, but also new strategies to to draw from those lessons right. in, in the current moment. It, it just seems like such an addiction for people, bad food, mm-hmm. you know, food. unlike other addictions where you can't have them at all. Like you can't have any alcohol, right, or any drug of a certain kind. Food is so different. You can be addicted to something, yet you don't have to give it up completely. I just, I find that yeah. interesting. I mean, I think so I mentioned, you know, really starting from a place of of celebration and opportunity versus one of sort of shame and rules. But I think also, you know, the the second piece is that opportunity to access and and have continued exposure to the foods that either are new or that are, are hard to get because of their proximity geographically or because of cost or whatever other factor that, you know, really matters in terms of healthy food access. And so, you know, especially when we're working with young people, but also with everybody in our community, like having the opportunity to taste and try and smell and cook with and, you know, especially, you know, connecting with farmers and seeing where those foods are coming from, each of those opportunities to, to reinforces connect the other. with yeah, those foods reinforces, true. right, yep. exactly. Yep. I mean, we hear with kids that like they need 10 to 20 exposures to, to new foods before they decide whether that was my like next them. question how many yeah. times do you have to introduce I remember that's it was a, a lot, lot of to ask from yeah. parents right like right. keep trying <laughs> I'm not gonna say you know I'm trying to get food on the table and I'm, I'm trying to get my kids to eat and so um, we are working with a few exciting partners at this point actually out of the University of New Mexico who've been running a a really innovative program up in northern New Mexico with Head Start centers with child care providers with Head Start who are building in those opportunities for exposure to new local foods to the to kids in their care so that when they go home and the parent puts, you know, melon on the table or kale on the table or um, a fresh tomato on the table, the kid has had a few opportunities to explore that food. And so they're less likely to say no, right? They're more likely and willing to try and discover the joy of, of those delicious flavors. Uh, Lee, tell us a little bit I was going to ask you to tell us a little bit more about the Fresh RX program. You describe these as actual foods that are actually prescribed, meaning by physicians. How does that work? I think some of the context here is that when we think about the opportunity to make healthy choices, we know that as people of privilege that it's a challenge, right? But when you look at communities, you can see that um, they're they're targeted, right? There's not 
there's not grocery stores. Some of the food that are in the stores is more expensive in communities with lower resources. Um, there's more alcohol outlets, right? There's there's just a lot less access to the opportunity to make healthy choices. And so that is reflected in our investments, right? So the Fresh RX program is one good example where we're um, prescribing fruits and vegetables to kids who are overweight or to families who their provider is determined that they just need to eat healthier food, right? So it's it's the doc who's doing the prescribing? Yeah, it really could be anybody on the care team. But yeah, usually, you know, we really rely on our, our physician and advanced practice clinician champions in our clinics because this type of intervention is outside of the norm and and takes extra time and passion (laughs) and understanding of the community. And so families are, it's partnered with, so not only are we supporting local farmers because people receive a prescription to get food at a local farmer's market or our mobile farmer's market or soon to be the Three Sisters Kitchen, but they also receive ongoing nutrition education. So they're coming back to their provider regularly to check in on their goals and to talk about any barriers or opportunities that they're facing. And um, it's also, uh, so I mentioned it's supporting the local growers, right? And also nutrition education and connecting to your patient's goals. So we're really looking at multiple strategies here. This making healthy choices around food is so complex that we have to work in so many different levels of what what in public health we call the socio-ecologic framework, right? So we're we're looking at policy. We're making sure that school districts has have policy where they can actually purchase local produce, where they're supporting curriculum in the schools, where kids are learning about where food comes from at an early age, and they're working in school gardens. And we're looking at institutional policy, like what are we requiring of farmers when we're purchasing food from them? And And is it something that we can help support them to get, you know, like certain types of gap certification or whatever? Um, And also just increasing the number of places where people can access healthy food through, um, you know, sponsoring farmers markets or our mobile farmers market that goes to schools and clinics and community centers. It's just such a really complex issue that you have to be working at all different levels and also providing nutrition education so people are being exposed to food and learning about the impact on health. Um, So many different strategies that you have to look at here. And uh, it's also expensive, right? So, I mean, who who pays for it all? Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) Great question. So that's why there has to be an investment from healthcare in my mind if we want to sort of shift the culture here around food and around healthy eating. And uh, I met Anzia because early on when I started with Presbyterian, she was the director of a community-supported agriculture program that um, was focused on it was working with a group of farmers in the South Valley of Albuquerque who had really strong and important values around supporting their farmers with you know, a minimum wage for farmers and for farm workers. And they 
understood that a lot of the people in their community, including their own families, couldn't afford to buy the food that they were selling to restaurants and, you know, fancy markets. And so they created this community-supported agriculture program that we helped to subsidize so families could get, you know, throughout the growing season, their share of this produce for $5 a week or $3 a week, right? And these shares were distributed through uh, different health centers and social service providers in that community. And they also offered recipes and, you know, nutrition education for the participants. So I had just started and I had some marketing dollars in my budget. And so I used my marketing dollars to to do this because to me, you know, we should be investing in this way as not only a nonprofit, but as a healthcare provider, you know, we need to be acknowledging what what barriers people are facing. And especially when it comes to food, when there's so many federal subsidies connected to unhealthy food, we have to even the playing field somehow. And if we are interested in building sustainable food economies in our in our local communities, we have to be investing in that as institutions and organizations who believe in these local communities and who are who are placed here and who understand that if we're all healthy, we're all healthier and that our investment really matters. So certainly we should be paying for it. <laughs> and that's <laughs> mostly who I can speak um, for. But, you know, we're partnering with other anchor institutions like the University of New Mexico, the city of Albuquerque, the community college here, the county, you know, we are all interested in investing in local food and increasing access to healthy food in our communities. Well, I mean, I think what's interesting here is the the subsidies coming down from from the federal level for large scale farmers and producers, you know, talking about corn and soy, um, but the lack of similar supports for small growers. Um, and those are largely the farmers that we're working with. Farmers working on on 10 acres or less here in our state, farmers committed to organic or biodynamic or sustainable practices um, who just aren't able to access the types of subsidies that those larger commercial growers are. And and that really is reflected in their price point, right? We think about local, we think about organic, we think about um, the types of foods that we're encouraging our communities to buy and cook with and eat. And we know that the prices are often high. And that's a reflection of the investment in in those sustainable practices, but also the lack of supports that those farmers are able to access, right? So we're looking for creative ways to to tap into um, financial resources or other supports that can help them increase efficiencies in the ways that they want to, you know, pay the living wages that they're committed to, continue to use the the sustainable um, practices and be good stewards of the land that define their practice and their commitment to community health while also being competitive in the marketplace. And we know it's really a challenge. And you, you must be familiar with Wholesome Wave, the organization that make sure that you know people have access to affordable healthy foods in the markets and doubling the um the, the benefit at the at the farmers markets are you working with them yes absolutely we have consulted with them over the years and i know that they are in the state and they you know we modeled our fresh rx program after their fbrx program yes yes um we just 
yeah, we we were unable to partner with them on it due to cost, but we, you know, they really have set the standard for how you do this, and we've certainly been participating in the Double Up Food Bucks, um, where you, you know, get $2 for every dollar you spend on SNAP, and we would you know, sponsor that before all the federal dollars came in that provided money for that. But at our mobile farmers market, we're really proud because half of the funds that are spent at that farmers market each year are through some sort of subsidized program. And we do our own sponsorship of, of Double Up WIC and Double Up Senior Checks and other sort of incentives that we provide for people to purchase food there. Yeah, WIC being uh, Women, Infant, and Children. Yes, yeah. Program. Yep. And it's been really exciting to see this, you know, continued investment and, and valuing um, the role of these these federal benefits and state benefits and what Lee is mentioning in terms of the power of, of these alternative ways of supporting programs is really important in our communities where there are people who are not eligible for those programs, whether it's because they're not documented or for other reasons, um, and the need still really exists. And so being able to couple the the federal supports and state supports with other, whether it's philanthropy or, or health system support for communities who are, are looking for those strategies to live healthier lives, but may not always have access to those additional resources is, is really crucial. I guess the big political forces that are connected to the root causes of why people are struggling in the first place. Well, I think about our sponsor, the Root Cause Coalition, and I think about, okay, what are the root causes of some of these issues? It feels like um, this critical work that you're doing, just like the work we do at Share Our Strength and with our No Kid Hungry campaign, is in many cases to kind of fill a gap that the political marketplace or the economic marketplace has left unattended. Uh, and particularly, I guess, when I think about farm policy and the farm, the small farmers that you're trying to support, are there some larger political issues we should be thinking about as well? What would you say, Lee? I, I first want to acknowledge the impact of the Affordable Care Act and what it, you know, that is why we are doing this work. I mean, it is a part of our purpose to improve the health of the communities we serve. But this is a part of the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare that people don't really talk about. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to do this but for that? I, You know, I know that our health system cares deeply about this community, but the, the ACA really provided further guidance on how we should go about this work. Mm-hmm. And it was developed by people who really understood partnering with community. And so I think... It has been key in how we how we move forward, and we've been really fortunate to leverage Center for Disease Control funds on, you know, healthy eating, active living, and and connecting community resources to our clinics. We also have USDA funds that are supporting our mobile farmers market, and we're right now just starting on a project where we're being funded by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services to screen people for housing, transportation, food insecurity, utility assistance, and um, personal safety. And we're through this process, we're going to be measuring the impact on quality, cost, and the outcome of care. So the federal policy is essential to moving this work forward, and it allows us to invest more resources in the community and utilize the resources that we have. For example, we also offer the at-risk and summer feeding program at five of our hospitals and our cafeterias. And what this means is that 
as many days as the cafeteria is open, which is seven in most cases, and for multiple hours in the day, we're able to offer any child who walks into that hospital a free meal. So they don't need to be any a patient. Under they could just come in, and that's where they can get their the meals that they were getting during the school year. But when the schools are closed in the summertime, they can actually be fed at the hospital. Yeah, but they're they're also fed during the school year. So we have the at-risk program, which is like the after-school program. So during the school year, if there's a child at, at any of the hospitals in the cafeteria, they can still get fed. So it's it's 365 days a year as long as the cafeteria is open. So that is a, a really great example of the funds that Congress has put into those programs and us utilizing this resource that we already have, our cafeteria and our purchasing power to buy food at a reasonable price and that we're already making meals, right? We're really able to leverage our resources and our investments in a new way. Is that statewide really, uh, or is that just Albuquerque? At, yes. It's statewide. No, it's it's at five of our yeah. hospitals, and really one of the most successful is in Clovis, New Mexico, which is really close to Texas. You know, it's a big agricultural community, a lot of oil and gas as well. And, you know, we have a food service director there who's passionate about this, and, you know, they are one of our highest performing sites, you know. Um, when you're really, you know, embedded in the community and care about it and, you know, it people know and and they they show up they also offer on their own discounted meals for the parents or the families if they're there eating with the child and lee how do you let people know about that how do how do folks find out that this service is even available well we share it with schools we share it on the internet you know in social media we do press releases and this is one of the programs that honestly it, it costs us very little money but you know, we're asked to share about it across the country to help other hospitals start programs. And also, it, it's one of those programs that, in a time where healthcare providers are really stressed out about the state of, of health in our country and the not having the tools that, uh, available to provide to people, it's the one that makes them feel the most proud to do this work um, and to be a part of a system that invests in this way. Um, so we get the word out in as many ways as possible. And I think sometimes people think it's, you know, not real because, like, why would you be able to just go in and get a right. free meal? But We're excited a, to hear about this program. because, um, you know, a big part of our strategy is obviously to leverage these programs for kids, you know, for breakfast, for after school and summer and summer being a particular uh, challenge when schools are closed. So we, we may or may not be doing some of this with hospitals, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to the office and check. Because that is really, that's pretty exciting. Uh, Anji, I'm going to uh, go back to you on the political question also uh, in terms of some of the political forces that you feel like uh, the families that you're trying to serve or are facing or that underlie some of these issues. How should we think about that? Yeah, I mean, there are just so many, <laughs> so many challenges in the current moment that I think really shape the health outcomes we see and the opportunities um, and the, the challenges that we see at the community level. And just to provide some context, right, what, what Lee is talking about is so important in a state where our overall hunger rate is, is about 16 percent, but where about 25 percent of the kids in the state are at risk for hunger, right? So the that's a reflection of the, the high rates of unemployment and underemployment. That's a reflection of, you know, all of the challenge, 
challenges that we've mentioned around healthy food access, but also, you know, the, the ways in which families are strapped for time because of, of what's required to make enough money to keep their kids fed or to pay those bills. Um, and so I think, you know, bringing in a pretty intersectional approach to um, this conversation, really knowing that we need to be talking about um, labor, we need to be talking about pushes for living wages locally and nationally. We need to, you know, especially when we're talking about farming and the, the food industry more generally, um, we need to talk about the, the benefits that are keeping so many families going, right? There's been all of these current attacks and critiques of the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program of SNAP, and we know how crucial that is to helping people get foods on, food on the table day to day and month to month. But, I, you know, it's also crucial that we're looking at the farm bill, that we're looking at the ways in which um, farmers, especially those small growers with commitments to sustainable growing practices and really thinking about the, the ways in which land and water are factors in what it means to grow healthy food, that they're getting the support they need, that they're you know, accessing the resources and, and technical assistance that they need to be successful, and that the rules and regulations that they need to comply with are reflective of, of what's realistic for those small growers, right? There's so many pieces to the conversation. A huge thing that we're seeing in Albuquerque, and I assume statewide, though I'm really based in the city, um, is just the climate of fear right now in our immigrant communities. And that leads to unhealthy outcomes, right? Both psychologically, but also what does it mean if you're scared to go to the grocery store? What does it mean if you're scared to pick your kids up from school, right? And so really needing to understand the complexity of the issues and of the rhetoric coming out of, of the the federal government in this moment um, and the impacts that has on on the health of our communities at the local level is, is crucial. As you were mentioning the SNAP program, uh, which, you know, we used to Call food stamps. We all know that there's a big battle uh, coming down the road, probably sooner rather than later, with the farm bill in terms of requirements, possibly work requirements or other restrictions that would make it harder for families to access SNAP. So um, that's a battle I'm expecting you'll be involved in and that we'll be involved in. Absolutely. You know, I'm a, a proud member of the local chapter of the National Young Farmers Coalition, and they've been doing a lot of great advocacy work um, around that issue and many others in the farm bill. But yeah, I mean, I think. The, the importance of both letting people know that we, we see them and we're committed to doing this hard work, whether or not they're able to do that advocacy and, and get heard by legislators that, that should be responsive, um, but also really thinking about, you know, what does is, what is solidarity look like in this moment, right? And so how are we connecting across sectors, across systems, across um, borders to, to really focus on building the healthiest communities for, for all. Well, one of the things that uh, I've really loved about this conversation is, you know, we usually uh, do these podcasts in Washington, D.C. or New York or Boston, uh, and there's such uh, interesting and innovative ideas coming out of places where people often don't pay enough attention to, like Albuquerque. But the fact that, uh, you know, programs like Fresh RX programs like what's going on in the hospitals, like Three Sisters Kitchen. There's so many lessons, I think, to be learned here for the rest of the country. So really excited to have had both of you on. Uh, just tell us, uh, as we wrap up, what's the best way, Anzia and Lee, for folks to find out more? What's the best website to go to to learn more about your work? This is Lee, and we have everything posted on the Presbyterian website, which is just phs.org. And if you follow the community link, you'll be able to find 
all of our assessments and plans and evaluation reports and information on all of our programs there. So more information than you would ever want to see is all at phs.org. Lee, I'm just wondering, are you getting requests? I don't know if your programs and the results are, you know, going beyond New Mexico, but are you getting uh, questions or inquiries about replicating some of this and other, and actually to Anzia, the same question uh, for Three Sisters? Yeah, so we, you know, we present on webinars and, and at national conferences all the time. So people, and just like we're learning from everywhere, you know, people I think are learning from us. And um, it's really a very, very exciting time to be in this work because we care more and more about our role as um, anchor institutions in our communities, and we're understanding more and more the disconnect between what people are really needing to be healthy and what we're what we're providing. So it's a, a great time to be, you know, uh, working in in this field. That's great, thanks, uh, Anzia. What's the best place for folks to learn more about Three Sisters Kitchen? Is it threesisterskitchen.org? It is. So you can visit us at, at threesisterskitchen.org. That's three fully spelled out. Sisters is plural. Um, kitchen.org. Or you can check out what's going on day to day on our Facebook page, which is just at Three Sisters Kitchen NM, which stands for New Mexico. We're really excited to be getting our renovations up and running and, and planning a big public launch um, in late August of this year. Well, congrats on that. Good luck with that. Anzia Bennett for director of Three Sisters Kitchen. Uh, from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Thanks for being with us. I hope you know what it means for those of us in, in the food world that the podcast exists and, you know, it's sort of being able to tune in and, and be reminded that we're not alone in this work and to be inspired, it really matters. And Lee Caswell, also Director of Center for Community Health Presbyterian Healthcare Services, phs.org. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here today. Thanks. And Debbie Shore, as always. Thank you. That was, it was a great show. Thanks. I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.